so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the Digital Public Square, a podcast from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission about ethics, theology, and philosophy in today's society. I'm your host, Jason Thacker, and I serve here as Chair of Research and Technology Ethics and also help lead the ERLC Research Institute. Each week, I'm joined by some of society's most influential thinkers, writers, and leaders to talk about the important ideas shaping our society today, as well as some of the top issues of life in the digital public square. Our goal with this podcast is to equip you to navigate these issues with biblical wisdom and insight. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the weekly tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing ethical issues of technology, as well as life in the public square. You can subscribe at jasonthacker.com slash weekly tech. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Digital Public Square, where every once in a while we're going to take a step back from our traditional interview format for me to be able to talk about a big pressing issue um, and how to think about that in light of the Christian ethic in the digital public square. Today, I want to highlight a piece that I recently wrote for Liberty Magazine, uh, which is a religious liberty magazine focused on the nature of the digital public square, specifically with content moderation and religious freedom. The article was entitled Free to Tweet, and it ran in the May and June issue of Liberty Magazine. One of the reasons that I wanted to write a piece like this was specifically because there's a lot of questions about the nature of content moderation, the nature of religious freedom, especially in a highly secularized society. A lot of the work that I've been doing for the last few years, especially at the ERLC here, is navigating some of the issues surrounding religious speech and religious freedom and how we kind of shape that up in our new digital society. As Carl F. H. Henry once wrote, if religious freedom is only advocated for pragmatic reasons, it can and will be sacrificed to expediency. He wrote these words in 1983, and Carl F. H. Henry served as kind of a titan of evangelicalism. He was a theologian and ethicist, and in many ways, his words were prophetic. It foreshadowed much of what would come after his death in 2003, especially as we kind of entered into this new digital epic, where so much of our conversation, so much of the tensions that we see in our society today are playing out right before us in this new digital public square. What once was a reserve for the kind of the town squares of old historic districts where we would gather together and be able to engage in kind of good faith conversation, Um, not that everything was always pleasant or everything always worked out, but we would meet face-to-face and talk. So much of today's conversation happens within the digital public square, and that's what a lot of what we talk about here on the podcast. While in past times there were traditional threats to religious freedom and free expression, some and many of those are still prevalent throughout the world today, not only internationally but even domestically, we have a lot of new questions, especially in light of these new technologies, about how we can preserve the freedoms of religion and speech in an increasingly digital society, especially where governments have taken a side seat to these transnational technology companies 
that in many ways wield an outsized influence on the digital public square and the, the ability to communicate with one another. As we began this new way of simply connecting with others and sharing kind of innocuous information, it's become one of the most important avenues for how we communicate with one another as a society. And as Christians, we should be thinking about how do we promote the common good, especially in an increasingly digital society. At the same time, it's clear that a lot of the benefits of the digital public square, there's also a lot of inherent dangers in that, where we're increasingly disconnected, not only from one another, but increasingly disconnected as a public from kind of a transcendent moral framework, where we've kind of in many ways inculcated this idea of this kind of rampant moral autonomy in our secular age. And this isn't just those people out there. In many ways, this has affected the way that the church even thinks about the nature of the gospel, the nature of what it means to be human and how we interact with one another. In this new digital environment, I think people of faith need to take a really hard look about how our moral convictions are being expressed and how we should be expressing them in the public square today and work to preserve a robust foundation of religious freedom for future generations. One of the things that I've noticed here at the ERLC is that we get a lot of questions about concerns about this outsized influence of technology companies in the public square. And one of the interesting things that I've noted throughout a lot of these conversations is this is one of the rare bipartisan agreement points in U.S. society today. Whether on the left or the right, there's an increasingly understanding that the digital public square is important and there's increasing questions about what does it look like to have free speech? What does it look like to engage in robust public dialogue about some of the most important issues of our day? Well, this concern about this kind of outsized influence is really that rare bipartisan moment, but that's basically where the agreement stops. Many progressives traditionally argue that we need more content moderation, especially with the growing influence of misinformation, fake news, and hate speech online. They argue that more must be done, especially by the government and alongside these companies, to kind of curb a lot of these dangerous issues, specifically around truth and the nature of truth in the public square. Conservatives, on the other hand, traditionally argue for less moderation because there's a notion that conservative speech, and especially conservative values, and even more specifically, a lot of religious speech and religious values, have been unfairly taken down, suppressed, or targeted. They cite instances where users have been banned or specific social media platforms have been shut down completely simply because of an ideological agenda that's prevalent within Silicon Valley. They likewise argue that if big tech doesn't rise to the occasion and fix a lot of these type of issues, that the government must step in to regulate this really influential industry. These debates are often categorized under the moniker of big tech. And if you've been a listener for the podcast for a while, you know that I don't typically use the word big tech, and there's a reason for that. Specifically because the term big tech is used as a label to label a number of companies that seem to have outsized influence in our society today. But often I don't think it's a very sharp word, meaning that I don't think it's a very nuanced word really picking up at what's really taking place here. The term really fails to account for a lot of the largest big tech companies, and especially in the United States, like Microsoft, Disney, Comcast, and Verizon, and traditionally focuses on a lot of the social media platforms who have outsized influence, including Twitter, which has a pretty small user base compared to the other companies such as Meta and Facebook, Alphabet with Google and YouTube and Amazon. Even though Twitter has so much of a smaller base, it also has a pretty outsized influence in the public square and the nature of communication. One of the main ways that we see these big tech companies exerting such influence over public conversation and opinion today is through the ways that they choose to moderate or promote certain types of content on their platforms. 
a lot of the questions that I receive in my role kind of overseeing research and specifically in technology ethics is the nature of content moderation. Because I think naturally, especially as Americans, we are a little unnerved by the idea that someone can moderate certain types of content and that we think, especially in light of free speech and free expression, that that shouldn't be allowed. Content moderation, though, is very difficult work for any social media company because every day there's millions and millions of posts and messages that are shared on these platforms. Most are benign in nature, but sometimes there's abusive, hateful, or even violent content that's shared or promoted by individuals or organizations. Most social media companies expect their users to engage on their platforms within a certain set of rules or community standards, per se. These content policies are usually developed with certain levels of care and nuance that reflect the gravity of the task before them in terms of providing a safe and appropriate place for users. Though it can be a really ethically thorny exercise because not all social media platforms are going to take in the wide-ranging views within the public square and kind of the diverse nature of our society, and because of the hyper-politicized nature of many of these issues surrounding online speech. During the past few years, content moderations have come under intense public scrutiny because of the breadth of the policies themselves, as well as the misapplication or more precisely the inconsistent application of these rules for online conduct. Whether it's preventing terrorist groups such as ISIS or authoritarian regimes like the Chinese Communist Party from using these platforms for mass propaganda, or even some of, in the case of the banning of former president of the United States, Donald Trump, these content moderation decisions made by these companies shape the public conversation in countless ways for both good and ill. One of the most common questions that I encounter concerning the nature of content moderation is whether technology companies should be moderating content at all. Some argue that moderation itself is inherently anti-free expression because we have the right to express ourselves really in any way we see fit. While freedom of expression is central to the democratic experiment, especially here in America, this issue is a little bit more complex than it may first appear. It's important to realize that there's a difference between censoring speech that's disagreeable and limiting speech that encourages or glorifies physical violence, that's illicit, that's sensual or exploitive in nature, that promotes crimes or is even inauthentic. Content moderation policies have really been encouraged by a lot of the technology policy we've had in the United States, specifically with Section 230 of the 1996 Communication Decency Act. This bipartisan piece of legislation was passed in the mid-90s and was designed to promote the growth of this fledgling internet. Section 230 gave internet companies a liability shield for user-generated content online, meaning that users, not the platforms themselves, would be responsible for the content of posts. The hope would be that companies would enact good faith measures to remove objectionable content in order to make the internet a safer and more free place online. But these good faith content moderations, even though they're designed to create safer environments for all users, at times they've been abused and misused in order to shield certain ideological commitments or certain beliefs or even specifically religious beliefs from entering into the public conversation, some that may be deemed dangerous or against kind of public opinion of the day. It's increasingly being used to suppress certain viewpoints that are deemed unworthy by the court of public appeal or viewpoints that are frequently touched on matters of especially the Christian moral tradition, such as human sexuality and religious freedom. But one of the things to note that's really important in the content moderation conversation is that content moderation in itself is good, but it can be misused and it can be abused and in many ways has been. 
Because naturally, we wouldn't want to be on these platforms if they're full of illicit and sensual content. It's one of the interesting things to note in the debate over pornography online is that many platforms like Facebook and Instagram don't allow nudity on their platforms, while others seem to revel in it in many ways. And so this is a debate even within the technology community about what's the nature of what kind of content can be shared online, what kind of policies should we have in place. But reality is, is that most of us would not want to be on these platforms if there were no content moderation policies, period. It would be a disgusting environment, a vile environment, where we would see just really the, the nature of human depravity on full display for all. And so that really the question here isn't, do we have content moderation, period? It's more so, what kind of content moderation policy do we have, and what are those policies and how they are applied equally? One of the big questions that we have in content moderation that I think is really central to the Christian moral tradition as we navigate some of these tensions over sexuality is the rise of hate speech. Interestingly about the nature of hate speech is that often religious speech is considered hate speech by many who disagree on very fundamental principles, especially nature of human sexuality. This question is often framed in light of the rampant moral autonomy of our day that champions free expression only for what is deemed popular or is seen as righteous in a secular sense. Ideas that run contrary to the secular orthodoxy are often deemed as hateful or backward or bigoted, and they're deemed not to be shared in the public square by many today. Hate speech has become a hugely consequential issue, especially a public debate, especially over the nature of religious expression and increasingly seen as inherently hateful, deleterious to our civil discourse, and even bigoted. While many technology companies today refer to international norms for dealing with controversial subjects, including especially the nature of human rights, it should be noted here that hate speech is often left vague and is incredibly undefined in legal terms because there's deep tensions between the nature of free expression and hate speech. Even the United Nations' own plan of action on hate speech from May 2019 makes this clear by saying there are no international legal definitions of hate speech, and the characterization of what is hateful is often controversial and disputed. While the United Nations itself leaves hate speech undefined, it clearly desires robust protections against hate speech, calling it a menace to democratic values, social stability, and peace that, quote, must be confronted at every turn. Similarly, in the United States, there are no legal definitions of hate speech, and the United States Supreme Court has routinely affirmed that hate speech is protected under the First Amendment. According to the American Library Association, under current First Amendment jurisprudence, hate speech can only be criminalized when it directly incites an imminent criminal activity and consists of specific threats of violence targeted against a person or a group. Thus, defining hate speech is an incredibly difficult task and made even more complex with the rise of online speech through these social media platforms. There are countless debates in society and the academy over what actually constitutes hate speech and whether that label should be limited just simply to speech that encourages violence or incites physical violence or harm. Many of the companies such as Meta and Twitter have incredibly broad definitions of hate speech, an approach that necessarily is going to impinge and infringe upon free expression and religious freedom, especially a lot of the controversial and most contentious issues of our day, namely human sexuality and marriage. 
Most people would agree that a lot of the prescribed categories laid out by Twitter, for example, include physical violence, the wishing or hoping or calling for serious harm for a specific person or a group of people, and even references to mass murder, violent events, and specifically means of violence where protected groups have been targeted as victims. That falls under good faith content moderation. Most Christians would agree that we shouldn't incite violence or encourage this type of physical violence and harm. Christians in particular can affirm these guidelines because we believe in the innate value and dignity of all people as created in God's image. And we also believe that there's a freedom of conscience that flows from that understanding of the Imago Dei. But when it comes to hate speech that is broadened to include not only physical well-being, but also psychological well-being, there's a lot of dangerous precedent being set for public discourse and specifically for the future of religious speech online as the Christian biblical sexual ethic is seen increasingly as odds and even hateful and bigoted and backward by many in our society today, even though it accords with our biological realities as we seek to promote the common good throughout our society. In October of 2022, the oversight board that was created by Meta or Facebook began its operation. And the board was specifically designed as a review mechanism to appeal content moderation decisions and a place for Meta to refer some of its most difficult content moderation decisions. The stated purpose of the board by Meta was to help answer some of the most difficult questions surrounding free expression online, quote, what to take down, what to leave up, and why through this independent external expert judgment. This board was designed to have upwards of 40 members from around the world, including four co-chairs, that would take upon these cases in recent years, especially concerning the nature of free expression and religious freedom abroad. One of the interesting things to note here is the number of cases that the board have actually taken on include a lot of conversation about free expression specifically, but even religious freedom, which I think speaks to the gravity of the content moderation decisions today and also the complexities of navigating religious speech online in a transnational environment where there are different cultures and values. While some companies have a better but not perfect track record than others in protecting religious expression online, some, especially Twitter as of late, have routinely suppressed people of faith from freely expressing their beliefs, especially around issues of human sexuality and gender. Most content moderation policies at these technology companies don't explicitly mention religious freedom, or if they do, it seems to be tucked in as kind of an afterthought in many ways. Religion is often only mentioned in terms of hateful speech based on someone's religious affiliation. But as Christians, we know that religious expression, especially in the public square, is key to what it means to have a public faith, a faith that's not just relegated to Sunday mornings or to specific private moments, but is to be lived out because it's changing every aspect of our life, including the way that we envision society. But as many of these companies promote inclusion and diversity, it must be for all people, not just those who hold popular or widely accepted beliefs, especially on some of the most consequential issues of our day. Religious freedom isn't just the freedom to believe or the freedom of worship per se, but to live in accordance with those beliefs in every aspect of life, including the public square. Limiting religious expression is increasingly normalized in our secular society where people of faith need to be aware of kind of the shifting dialogue surrounding religious speech, especially as it pertains to this digital environment where so much of our conversation and communication takes place on these privately held social platforms. And Christians know that faith by nature is public. As the late Richard John Newhouse wrote, that there is no such thing as a truly, quote, naked public square, 
meaning one that's devoid of religious-like undertones or ideological commitments, even from some of the most secular members of society. Everyone, and I mean everyone, is bringing their beliefs into the public square and suppressing religious expression is at odds with the nature of free expression, especially the nature of human dignity in our nation and many other nations around the world. The reality is that everyone brings their deeply held beliefs into the public square, and that specifically suppressing religious expression is at odds with the nature of free expression and human dignity that our nation and many nations around the world uphold as a cherished ideal. No matter what some people will claim, people of faith simply cannot check their beliefs at the door or act as if their faith has no bearing on their public life. Some people of faith have been rightfully criticized by taking an exclusive approach to religious freedom in the sense of an approach that says religious freedom is for me but not for thee. A similar criticism can be leveled at those who prize free expression for socially acceptable ideas but not for those deemed unworthy of expression, such as the traditional Christian sexual ethic beliefs. But as we started off today talking a little bit about, Carl F. H. Henry once said, it's not the role of government to judge between rival systems of metaphysics and to legislate one over the other. Rather, it's the role of government to protect and preserve the free course of its constitutional guarantees. While there are countless complexities in applying this approach to the digital public square, which is governed by these privately held companies, the principles of free expression and religious freedom are vital to a robust and healthy public square. With big tech's outsized influence over our public discourse, especially in times of high polarization and division throughout our nation and throughout the world, we need, as a public and as a society, a truly inclusive approach, approach that doesn't suppress religious viewpoints in this ironic call for toleration, diversity, and inclusion. If you want to read more about the nature of free expression in the digital public square, you can check out the show notes where I'll link to not only this piece that I wrote at Liberty Magazine, but also some other helpful resources. One thing to note specifically for podcast listeners is that next February, February of 2023, we'll be releasing a volume called The Digital Public Square, Christian Ethics in a Technological Society with B&H Academic. In this volume that I edited, I was joined by 12 other contributors to write a various set of essays kind of covering not only issues of the nature of public square, the nature of technology, and how it's shaping and forming us, getting into issues of technology policy, even religious freedom, and kind of the legal challenges surrounding free expression, and even getting into issues of hate speech and content moderation and how we live life in an increasingly digital society. You can make sure to check that out. You can go to jasonthacker.com slash books. You can see some of the pre-order links or read more about the contributors and those who have been part of this project so far. But that'll be due out in February of 2023. So highly encourage you to check that out. We'll also have in the show notes a few different articles and resources that you can check out as well. Well, from all of us here at the Digital Public Square, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about the podcast with others. As a reminder, you can not only check out the article that I wrote for Liberty Magazine, but a lot of the other resources that I mentioned earlier in the podcast in the show notes. Also, make sure to sign up to receive the weekly tech email briefing that comes out each Monday morning. This resource is designed to prepare you to think deeply about these pressing ethical issues of technology in the public square today and to also stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can sign up at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. The Digital Public Square is a production of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission and is produced and hosted by Jason Thacker. Production assistance is provided by Cameron Hayner and technical production provided by Owen Productions. 
It's edited and mixed by Mark Owens. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week.